Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our Friday series, Walking Through the Book of Jonah with James Jordan. And here, Jordan discusses a good bit of Old Testament history to help us understand why the city of Nineveh. Please do take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, take a look at that intensive course that is coming up in the month of March. Peter Lightheart will be teaching that intensive course on Apollyan theology, and we'll pay special attention to Romans and Galatians. We really hope that you enjoyed this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Old Testament history and the book of Jonah. I have a quiz for you. Okay, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a king, and he was a bad king. And uh, so God raised up a new king to replace him. And when the old bad king died, his son took over, and the nation divided in half between the people who wanted the new king and the people who followed the son of the old king. But after a few years, the new king was victorious over the son of the old king, and he was now the king, the new king. The new king conquered a city and made it his special capital, and he built up the nation. And after his reign, his son came to the throne, and his son built a great temple for the worship of their God. And he married foreign women, and the women turned his heart away from the Lord. Now, does anybody know who those kings are? Quiz time. Who was the old king? Who was the son of the old king? Ishbosheth. Or Ishbaal as he was known in life. Okay, man of the Lord. But Baal, after a while, we can't call, we can't use that name for God anymore, so his name was changed to Ishbosheth in the text of Kings. In Chronicles, he's still called Ishbaal. In Kings, he's called Ishbosheth, which means what? Surely you know this. It means man of shame. Okay. Mephibosheth. His original name was Mephibaal. Okay, this is kind of off the subject. Okay, who was the new king? And what, what city did he conquer? Jerusalem. That didn't sound very confident. And what was his son's name? Okay. Well, you're partly right. You might turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. And we're going to start in verse 15. We could start earlier, but we'll start here. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's southern Israel, Zimri reigned for seven days at Tirzah, the capital of northern Israel. Now the people were camped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the people who were camped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and has struck down the king. Zimri had just finished murdering Ella, the previous king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel went up with him 
from Gibbethon, and they besieged Tirzah, capital of northern Israel. And it came about when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. How did he die? Someone kill him? Or did he commit suicide? It was like he committed suicide, right? How did Saul die? Basically, he committed suicide. Because of his sins which he sinned, doing evil in the sight of Yahweh, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in his sin which he did, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his conspiracy that he carried out, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Which is not the same as the biblical book of Chronicles. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king. The other half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, and Tibni died. Tibni died, and Omri became king. South familiar? In the 31st year of Asa, king of Israel, Omri became king of Israel and reigned 12 years. He remained six years at Tirzah. And then he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer. Okay, now in Hebrew, Samaria is Shemeron. He bought Shemeron from Shemer. Okay, he bought the hill of Samaria from Samer for two talents of silver. And he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria after the name of Samer, the owner of the hill. And Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. Now, he reigned for six years at Tirzah, and then he moved the capital to Samaria. David reigned for six years, then he conquered Jerusalem and moved the capital to Jerusalem. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who came before him, for he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking Yahweh, God of Israel, with their Idols with their vanities, with their empty things. And what is the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin? Who wants to remind the class? He set up golden calf. Okay? At Bethel and at Dan. And he said, this is now the place where you worship the Lord, through this image. Okay, just like when we came out of Egypt and what he was saying was, this is the true worship and this temple down in Jerusalem, that's not the real worship. And he closed the border and he told everybody that they had to worship at the shrines of the calves. The calf is a symbol of God's power and God is supposed to be riding on the back of this calf. All right. And he took away the Levites from being priests. The Levites wouldn't cooperate with this. And he sold the right to be priests to anybody who wanted to be. Okay. You may remember a little bit later on that Elisha came to Bethel and 42 young men came out and made fun of him and bears came and ate him up. Now, those 42 young men were not little boys. They were deacons. The word is technical. Deacons of the idol shrine at Bethel. So this was a war against idolatry when Elisha does that. But now this is the sin. And it says, Omri 
was even more ferocious about this than the kings previously. Omri was really making northern Israel into a big deal. And now I'll tell you something. The Bible doesn't do this, but the pagan nations round about refer to northern Israel as Omri land. Omri land. In the annals of the Syrians and the Assyrians and whatnot, this country is called Omri land. That's how important he was. Okay, Not much in the Bible about him. The emphasis is on his son. Verse 28. So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria and Ahab, his son, became king in his place. Now, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, that's an allusion back to something which you probably don't catch. Anybody catch the allusion? Omri was evil more than all who came before him. And Omri, Ahab. Ahab was evil more than all who came before him. And Ahab is parallel to who? Omri is parallel to... I'm going to just shoot myself. No. Zimri is parallel to Saul. Zimri killed himself. Omri is parallel to David. Ahab is parallel to who? Solomon. Shalomo, okay? Shalom. Shalom. What? What? No, no, they're not the same. Okay. Very slightly similar, but not the same. Okay? Now, Ahab was evil more than all who were before him. Anybody remember a parallel to that? What? Yes, Solomon was wiser more than all who came before him. In chapter 3, verse 12, okay, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. So Solomon was wiser than all who came before. Ahab is evil more than all who came before. Verse 31, And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidon, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he marries a foreign woman. Solomon married the daughter of the Pharaoh of Egypt. We're not told that she corrupted him. Uh, she's probably the girl in Song of Solomon, or at least the basis of it. But uh, he married lots of other foreign wives, and it says they turned away his heart. Now look at this. Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. Now, we think about the city of Sidon. What city is matched with that? Blank and Sidon. Tyre. Now, in David and Solomon's day, who was in charge of Tyre? Hiram, king of Tyre. And Hiram helped David build the temple, uh, helped David, and he helped Solomon build the temple. And Hiram was a believer 
And in his day, the city of Tyre and Sidon were believing cities allied with the true temple. Now, what's happened in the meantime is there's been a revolution in Tyre and Sidon. And Hiram and his kingship has been kicked out. And Ethbaal, priest of Baal, has taken over. And his daughter is now marrying Ahab. So instead of an alliance between David and Solomon and a righteous Tyre and Sidon, we now have an alliance with a wicked Tyre and Sidon. And they serve Baal and worship him. Now, this is not the worship of calves. This is a worship of foreign God. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Okay, so he built a temple, a temple for Baal. And Ahab also made the statue of Venus or Aphrodite. Thus, Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, way back at the beginning, when we conquered the land of Israel, what was the first city that we destroyed? Or actually, the Lord destroyed it. What was the first city we destroyed when we conquered Canaan? Jericho, right? And what was the prophecy that was made? The person who rebuilds Jericho will start the city with the death of his firstborn son and end the city with the death of his lastborn son. Now, the next verse we read, In Ahab's days, Hiel the Bethelite, Bethel, the center for the idol shrines, Hiel the Bethelite rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations with Abiram, his firstborn son, and set up its gates with his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, this might mean that when he started building the city, the Lord struck his firstborn son. But much more likely, it means that his human sacrifice was a threshold sacrifice placed at the bottom of the city. When you start to build a city, you kill somebody and put their body under the threshold of the city uh, as a sacrifice on which the city is built. It's what you got to do. The first city that was ever built in the world was Enoch, built by Cain on his brother's blood. Rome was built by Romulus on the blood of his brother Remus. Remember that from school? Romulus and Remus? And... Remus challenges Romulus, and Romulus kills him, and then builds the city of Rome. That's a founding myth. Our city in the New Jerusalem is built on whose blood? Jesus' blood. That's how it works. You might usually do an animal sacrifice. But in this case, this is happening. So what this means is the Canaanites are now back in charge. Okay, Baalites are back in charge. Canaanites are back in charge. We have now... Gone from liturgical idolatry, the sin against the second commandment, to covenantal idolatry, the sin against the first commandment. Jeroboam's sin was to say, we're going to worship the Lord, but we're going to use images. So he's violating the second commandment. You will not set up for yourselves any images as regards the likeness of anything in heaven and earth or heaven above or the earth beneath or waters under the earth. You will not bow down to them or serve them because I'm a jealous God. You don't set up images and worship through them. That's the second commandment. That's what Jeroboam did. Now we go back to the first commandment. You will not have any other gods 
preferable to me. Okay, there are Elohim means powers. There are other powers you've got to respect, including human rulers, which are sometimes called Elohim. But only Yahweh is the supreme God. And now we have gone back to paganism and we've made Baal the supreme God. So now, see, this, this two removes the sin here. The first sin against the second commandment set up calves to worship the Lord. The second sin now in Ahab's day, everything is much worse going completely back to the Canaanites. And so what needs to happen, of course, is a new conquest of Canaan, which starts with Elijah. Elijah calls for a drought. For three years there's a drought. For three years. Imagine that. No rain for three years. People are starving. No crops. Animals are dying. After three years, it's bad, you know. Then rain comes, but... Ahab and Jezebel, they don't repent. So we have another conquest under Elijah. You know, he comes and all these other things happen. And then God raises up somebody to take out the line of Ahab. To get rid of these idolaters. To get rid of these neo-pagans who have taken over the land. And does anybody remember the name of the king, the name of the general, who was raised up to wipe out Ahab and his family? You're absolutely right. Jehu. That's only half of his name. Jehu is the same as the word Yahweh. Okay? And that is, on the chalkboard here, I'm writing the word Theophoric. I've been waiting for a year for my chalkboard. It's been promised. At any rate, the kings of Israel usually had God's name in their name. Amaziah, Azariah, okay, Yah sound, or Yehoiakim, Yehoiachin, okay, Yeho, that's the same. It's just another way of pronouncing Y-H, okay? And this guy's name is Jehu. Now, his real name was probably Yehoiako, or something like that, see? Yahobabi. Who knows? But that's been left off so that we get the picture of the Lord himself coming to destroy. Now, that picture is given to us quite dramatically. We are leading to Jonah in my own good time. In 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 20. I'll read all this through because it's fun. Now, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets one of the seminary students, and said to him, Gird up your loins, and take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive there, look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go, this is not Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, this is just another guy with the same name. See, his name is Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. See, his, his, his name was probably Jehu. Shamat or something. But you, you see how this works. We're only getting the theophoric God part. Theophoric God part of the name for symbolic reasons. Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and cause him to arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. 
Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says Yahweh, I have messiahed you king over Israel, anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and run away and do not wait. Flee. Book it out of there. Uh, just picture that. Prophet goes in, got some inner loom. The Lord has anointed you. And he runs out. Okay? You've got to get a picture of that. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting. And he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I have anointed Messiah, you king, over the people of Yahweh, even over Israel, and you will strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of Yahweh at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every person who urinates against the wall. That's a reference to men. But as dogs, everyone who urinates against the wall, both the restricted and the abandoned, those locked up and those forsaken in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs will eat up Jezebel. Oh, I love this. The dogs will eat up Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none will bury her. And he opened the door and ran away. And Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said, Is all well? What did this insane guy come to you? What did he want? And he said to them, You know very well the man and his talk. And they said, Now you're lying to us. Tell us, tell us what he said. And he said, Such and such he said to me, Thus says Yahweh, I've anointed you king over Israel. Then they hurried, and each one took his clothes and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. There you are, just like Palm Sunday, right? You probably remember this being mentioned uh, in the sermons. Okay, you put your garments down, that's the same as saying, the king rides on my shoulders. I hold him up. Okay, so that's what they do. They blow the trumpet. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Joram is the son of Ahab, who's king. Now, Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, is this your, if this is in your mind, let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it in Jezreel. Now, I want to point out to you, remember that Hazael was anointed by the Lord to be king and raised up to punish Israel. Uh, Elijah was told, go and anoint Hazael, king of Israel. This is what's new in history. The Lord starts to anoint kings in foreign nations. So the fact that uh, Hazael has wounded Joram, Joram already is part of God's punishment of Israel. Verse 16. Then Jehu rode in a chariot. Who else rides in the chariot? Up in the sky. In a cloud chariot. Yahweh. Yahweh rides in a chariot in the sky. Okay? And now Yahu rides in a chariot. And went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. And Ahaziah, king of 
Judah had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. And he said, I see a company. (laughs) I see a multitude. And Joram said, take a horseman and send him out to meet them and say, you come in peace? A horseman went out to meet him and said, thus says the king, do you come in peace? And Jehu said, what do we have to do with peace? Join me. And the watchman reported, the messenger came to them, but he did not return. <laughs> the messenger has figured out which side he wants to be on. So they sent out a second horseman who came to them and says, thus says the king, you come in peace? Jehu said, what are, what are we to do with peace? Join me. And the watchman reported, he came even to them and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives like a madman. Okay. The prophet was called a madman because he ran out. And now Jehu has been anointed with this same spirit, the spirit of velocity. <laughs> this is the prophet comes in, anoints him and dashes out. That spirit has come upon Jehu. The, the commander said, who was that madman who ran out of here? Now Jehu is the madman who runs. Well, Jehu brings punishment on all of them. But Jehu, instead of returning to true worship of Yahweh, he returns to calf worship. So he gets rid of the pagans, but he institutes Roman Catholicism. All right. This is what we're talking about here. We're talking about worshiping God through pictures and images like Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. We're talking about setting up shrines. The old time we worship God through animals. Right. You brought a bull or an ox or a sheep or a goat or a turtle dove or a pigeon. And that's how you approach God. And so the idol symbols were animals. In the New Testament, we worship God through the man, Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, the idols are symbols of pictures, pictures of Mary, pictures of St. Bartholomew, statues of this, statues of that. Animals then, people now, but the same principle, setting up images and approaching God through them. Now, you know, image worship is a lot better than pure paganism. But that's what we've gone back to. And God is not satisfied with that. It's a sin. But he'd rather have that than pure paganism. It's kind of a lesson for us in terms of how we deal with these forms of Christianity that violate the second commandment. But at least they're not worshiping other gods. Yes. Yes. Liturgical sin. Setting up images and worshiping through that instead of worshiping through language alone. Okay. God says you saw no form, but you heard words. Okay. So that's true worship is sung worship with words, not bowing down in front of pictures, burning candles in front of pictures. But that's what they do. So Jehu reinstitutes Jeroboam worship, but. For the sake of the poor in Israel, God accepts that. Now, we're almost done. But in chapter 13, now we're going to read this part and see. We're we're leading down to why Jonah is sent to Nineveh. All right. And at this time in history, the nation that God raises up to punish northern Israel is Syria. And he did that by anointing Hazael. Remember? Just said that. 
Hazael is anointed king over Syria. Hazael then becomes strong and he makes war on northern Israel and he punishes them. Then Jehu comes and he finishes out the house of Ahab. But God keeps the Syrians, Arameans, Hazael and his kings continue to punish and be enemies of northern Israel as scourges on them for their sin. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king in Judah, Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu something, became king over Israel at Samaria. This is chapter 13. He reigned 17 years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he caused Israel to sin. He did not turn from them. What is that sin? Worshiping the Lord through images. Right? So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz entreated the favor of Yahweh. And Yahweh listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel and how the king of Syria oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which he caused Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the statues of Venus, the Asherah, also remained standing in Samaria. For he left to Jehoahaz of the army not more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots, goodness gracious, and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust of threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Israel, and Jehoahaz, his fathers, and the Abirians, Mary and Joash, his son became king of his place. All right, let me ask you something. Got to think about this is a mystery. The king of Syria defeats Israel so bad that Jehoahaz, king of Israel, has only 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 infantrymen. That's not a big army. Now, we just read that the Lord raised up a Savior who saved so that Israel escaped from the hands of the Syrians. Who do you think that Savior was? One thing for sure, it was not an Israelite. It doesn't say that the Lord built up the army of Israel and Israel defeated the Syrians. Obviously, Israel did not defeat the Syrians. You don't defeat the Syrian army with ten chariots and fifty horsemen and ten thousand infantrymen. You don't. That's not the Savior. The Savior has to be somebody else who is drawing the Syrians away. Some mysterious power out on the horizons who is making war on Syria so that Hazael and Ben-Hadad say, whoa, uh, we better deal with these guys over here. So they leave Israel alone. You think that might be Nineveh? 
Well, I think that might just be. Now, Jonah hadn't gone there yet. But that just might be the Savior that is drawing things away. See, you've got to. First time you read that, you think, oh, the Lord must have sent them a mighty commander, a big soldier in their army. No, that's not it. That's clearly not it. Well, let's continue on in verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jeho, something or other. See, following me now. Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he, with which he caused Israel to sin. But he walked in it. And the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and all his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles, king of Israel? Joash slept with his father. And Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second, sat on his throne. The first king of northern Israel was Jeroboam. This is now Jeroboam the second. All right. So I'm going to keep saying Jeroboam the second so that you remember that, even though in the text it just gives his name. Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. All right. Now Elisha became sick with the illness with which he was to die. And Joash, king of Israel. Okay. Uh, We're going back to another king. Came to him and wept over him. Joash slept with his fathers. So this is before he dies. Joash, king of Israel, kept down with him came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So even though this guy was committing the sins of Jeroboam and worshipping at the calves, he still respected Elisha. No, it's like some Roman Catholic guy who really respects Billy Graham or something. Or maybe Franklin Graham. At any rate, you know, he wants to come and he respects him. And Elisha said, okay, I'll tell you what you need to do. Take a bow and arrows. So King Joash took a bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the windows toward the east, the direction of Syria. And he opened it. And Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, Yahweh's arrow of victory even the arrow of victory over Syria, with which you will defeat the Syrians at Aphek until you destroy them. And then he said, take the arrows. And the king took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck it three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. You should have shown you really meant it. You should have gone, you know, but you didn't have the energy. Then you would have struck Syria until you destroyed it. But now you shall strike Syria only three times. And Elisha died and they buried him. And now we'll skip. Well, we better not skip, you know. Now the bands of Moabites would invade the land. They were burying a man. Behold, they saw a marauding band. They cast a man into a grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. That's why, you know, when we fix this church up, we're going to put the bones, relics of a saint inside this altar here. So that when you touch the altar, you'll come back to altar. This is why people in the East do this, though. No, this is a one-off deal. We're not supposed to be taking bones of saints and putting them in altars and touching them or anything. But this is an amazing story. But we've got to pass beyond that story now because that's not germane. 
Now, Hazael, king of Syria, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. Well, that was the story we just read about that a mysterious deliverer had come up. And when Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. And then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazrael, the cities which we had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered cities of Israel. Now, only three times. The Syrians are still there. The Syrians are still a danger. The Syrians are still a threat. The Syrians are still God's scourge. Now we come to Jonah. Chapter 14, verse 23. So just turn the page. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, and this gets confusing. There's a Joash up north. There's a Joash down south. This is, jo- this is irrelevant. Okay. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. So this is Jeroboam II. We're back now to the northern kingdom. He reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he, with which he caused Israel to sin. But he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-Hepper. For Yahweh saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, that there was neither bound nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say he would blot out the name of Israel under heaven but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and all his might and how he fought and how he recovered for Israel, Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel and Jeroboam sat with his fathers, even the kings of Israel and Zechariah, his son, became king in his place. Not Zechariah the prophet, but Zechariah king of northern Israel now. Jeroboam II defeats Syria and conquers Damascus, capital of Syria. How is he able to do that? He's able to do it because the Lord has compassion. And he does it because the word of Jonah the prophet tells him to go out and do these things. Why? Because the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was bitter And the Lord would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. Now, this is where we plug in the book of Jonah. Jonah goes and converts Nineveh. Nineveh is now favorable to Judah and Israel. Nineveh now extends, you've got to read between the lines here, extends protection over Israel and Judah. They say to the Syrians, hey, you know, you mess with Judah, you mess with us. You know, you want to bring it on? You want a piece of me? Hey, you know what the Syrians are like? Well, we don't want, you don't want to mess with us. So, uh, especially those guys back there. I mean, I'm trying to be nice to you. What they want to do is come in and kill you. I'm trying to restrain them. Don't make them mad. You know how this works. So, after the king of Syria wakes up with a horse's head in his bed, 
uh, he decides he's not going to mess with the Assyrians or with Israel any longer. Now, this is because the Lord has determined not to blot the name out of Israel out from under heaven. When we plug in the book of Jonah, we see God raises up the Assyrians. For a while, they protect Israel. Eventually, they will conquer Israel, but they will not blot out the name of Israel. They'll take them into captivity. They'll hang around into captivity. And then they'll be scattered around as the ten lost tribes, right? They become the gypsies. Gypsy Joe used to say that the ten lost tribes were the gypsies. They become the American Indians. No, they hang around out there in Assyria and in the east. And then eventually the Babylonians bring the southern Israel, Judah, into the same area. And then they all go back together. The ten lost tribes are not lost. We run into them in the New Testament. Anna in the temple is of the tribe of Asher, one of the northern tribes. So this ten lost tribe stuff, that's just a bunch of baloney. They were protected in, in Assyria just as the tribes of Ju- tribe of Judah and Benjamin were protected in the same area once the Babylonians took over. And when the captivity was over, they moved into the same estate as Judah did. Okay? Now you see the context in which Assyria is coming on the scene. Assyria makes Syria less dangerous to northern Israel. And, as, and eventually... Uh, enables northern Israel to completely free itself from Syrian threat. And then eventually will take northern Israel into captivity as a, full, as a punishment by God. But not a full punishment because God determined that they would not be completely blotted out. Okay? So that's the background of the story. Any questions? It would be a lot nicer if our English Bibles translated the word Syria as Aram. We would have Hazael, king of the Arameans. Then we wouldn't say Syria and Assyria and constantly get confused about it. But unfortunately, our Bibles are the way they are. And you've got to distinguish Syria and Assyria. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.